Come on, stars. Stars. Line up. Get in place. Mm-hmm. Welcome to Originality, the podcast where we talk about and explore the roots of creativity and creative genius. I am one of your hosts, and I am joined by... Kay Tempest Bradford. Oh, I didn't say my name. You didn't say your name. (laughs) Just like I'm one of your hosts. That person whose mysterious voice. Oh, all right. So it took me like six times to record that. I feel really good about recording a podcast today. How are you, Tempest? Recording a podcast today is the best. (laughs) It's the best thing we could be doing right now. It's the way I always feel about recording episodes of Originality. Uh, So there you go. Yeah, I look forward to talking with you when I was going to say every week, but we don't do it like that. So it's it's good. I'm glad (laughs) that we always have this excuse to come together and talk. It is true. We do. So Tempest, you got to talk with our guests this time. You want to you wanna set that up for everybody? Yes, I got a chance to talk to artist Grace P. Fong, who I met on the Writing Excuses cruise. Um, though I've known Grace sort of through the internet and through mutual friends um, like a little bit for a long time. But when we were on the cruise together, that gave us a chance to really get to know each other. And now we hang out in virtual spaces together all the time. And I just really enjoy talking to her. I really enjoy looking at her art. And so I thought that she would make a really good guest for this podcast. I am really looking forward to it. Yeah, it's going to be great. And uh, I'll, I'll let Grace introduce herself a little bit. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Grace, uh, Grace Fong, and I am an illustrator, and I like to specialize in science fiction and fantasy illustration. So yes, Grace draws stuff um, mainly in the genre where I write, which is, again, how we came across each other. But what I found interesting is that she... The reason why she draws in this genre is because of the influence that she had uh, when she was a young girl drawing things and, and imbibing different science fiction fantasy media. And so I wanted to talk to her about like what those roots were, like why she started drawing particularly this, this genre. And, and in the process of that, I learned some other really interesting things about her. For me, the whole reason I got into art was because as a kid, I would read all these books like specifically Tamora Pierce and Diana Wine-Jones and uh, Kay Applegate from the Animorphs. And so for me, drawing was a way of expressing my love for these stories. And so everything I work on visually is rooted in story. So after I graduated college, I ended up going out to work in L.A., and from there, it's such a entertainment business-driven town. And basically, as Pixar would say, story is king. So everything that... So drawing is a form of expressing story without using words. Because of all those books I read as a kid, my brain processes things verbally through words. And so going back to... Uh, writing rather than just drawing is using a separate part of my brain. But in the end, it all goes back to storytelling and using different mediums to express the lives of the characters and the settings that I've come up with. That idea of story is king, um, it really, that, that speaks to something that I've been thinking about for the past couple of years which is just about how narrative is so hardwired into us as humans for whatever reason. And we really respond to narrative. So, you know, even as, as Grace was saying, like she creates visual narratives, but there's, there's still a story in there. Um, and, you know, narratives come at us in all these different ways. But I think that a lot of the problems that I perceive in what's going on, like say in our culture, um, particularly American culture, most of the time, I feel like there are problems of narrative that, you know, some groups of people understand how to create and manipulate narrative and some groups of people don't. Or the other groups of people who do understand how to create narratives, they don't use them for manipulation purposes. They just use them to tell great stories. 
if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does without without getting too political. Um, I feel like that's that's one of the differences that we see in like in the U.S. between the Democratic and the conservative parties is that I feel like the conservatives are very good at at telling a story, putting a story together and in telling that and doubling down on that. Whereas um, I feel like the the liberal party or liberal people are more about like, I don't know, brief rallying cries and they don't they don't put narratives together so much. Um, and I think I think that that plays to a very fundamental part of um, what what people are looking for. You know, we like to tell stories. We assign stories to everything, you know, like, why did that guy cut me off when I was driving, you know, here, you know, because he's a jerk, because there's an emergency, an urgent situation, because he's not paying attention, because he's stressed, because, um, you know, he, whatever. And so we, we assign narratives to people and things all the time without realizing it. Yeah, we do. And I think that sometimes there are the people who don't want to use narratives in arenas outside of fiction, like literally outside of fiction. They're like, no, we can't have that. It's because, not because they don't understand the power of narrative necessarily, but they also view creating narrative as, as creating something fake or, or being inherently manipulative. And the, the beef that I have with that point of view is that as a person who does create narratives and tell stories and has studied how mythology and fairy tales work and have has done a little bit of studying about ancient cultures it's it doesn't have to be manipulative but you you do have to tell you do have to craft a narrative and even if that crafting of the narrative is for the purpose of getting across facts like narratives are not necessarily lies no but I think that that's how they're thought of. And so, yeah, I just, I think about that because when thinking about, say, the kind of visual art, um, people don't always realize that every time you're looking at a piece of visual art, whether it's an ad or it's, you know, fine art or whatever it is, they're, they're processing it in terms of story. Um, and sometimes they're processing it in terms of story on a subconscious level, which is why I, I often get frustrated with people who are like, oh, I never really notice ads and stuff. Or I'm like, well, first of all, you do notice ads. It's just that you, you're now noticing them on a subconscious level. If you actually stop and look and analyze ads, you might be able to sort of combat the, the, the messages that that art is trying to convey to you and, you know, have different ideas about what it is that art is trying to convey to you. Because, all advertising is manipulation on some level anyway. So yeah, I just, that idea that, you know, going, going to LA, you know, showed her like story is king and, and that applies just as much to visual art as it does to writing. I feel like there are a lot of people who like don't do visual art who don't understand that, but it's really, really true. Well, so I'm, I think I'm a prime example of this is um, somebody who I, often have been said I don't understand visual art, especially like modern painting, you know, kind of like the Pollock type splatter paint on a canvas. I, I I don't get that. Like I don't, I just don't get that. But I often said that about all sorts of things. Um, and we've talked about this previously, but over the summer I got to spend a week in Chicago and I got to go to the Art Institute and wander around for, I don't know, half a day probably. And I walked out of there with such an appreciation for art that I've never had before. Like I've been to, you know, Washington DC before I've been to, you know, the Smithsonian Institute and the fine art wings and that kind of thing. And, and looked at Da Vinci's paintings and, and yeah, that's cool. But you know, what do you do? And this time, I don't know if it's because I'm getting old and I can appreciate things better. Um, but this time I, w I was just blown away, especially I was there with my friend Jean 
And she said, um, I think you should go to the Impressionist wing or to the Impressionist area. And I was like, oh, I've never been into Impressionist paintings, but okay, whatever. And um, I took her suggestion, went up there, and uh, it was amazing. Like, And for the first time, it was like, oh, I think I kind of get why people are are moved by art. And part of that, and this is the part I think we've talked about before, was like, seeing the brush strokes on stuff and and what do the brush strokes convey what you know are they are they bold do they look like they were done quickly can you not see the strokes very well was it something done with a lot of precision like it it was it, it for me it brought a completely different experience to it in another layer to that storytelling um that I've never really appreciated before. And, um, I really want to go back to another art museum and see what my experience is and see what stories I can pull, not just from like, what is, what is actually on the canvas? Um, but also, you know, from what is around it, you know, and, and how people react to it and all of that, it's all kind of interconnected with, with the story, I think. It definitely is. And, um, Grace is going to actually talk a little bit about that. Uh, in the later part of the interview, because um, we we got a little bit into foreshadowing. Yeah, we got a little bit into like artist techniques and the difference between you know different art techniques and stuff. Um, I wanted to to let her talk a little bit about the kind of stuff that she draws because I think that it's well we're at a podcast so we can't show you, but obviously it's you'll beautiful. be able to the show notes and and click on her art and especially like go back through her Instagram um, and we'll talk about what's what's in her Instagram that I really think you should look at uh, in in another in another little while. But um, but yeah, let's uh, let's listen to just her explaining like the kind of stuff that she likes to draw um, and that that she does the most work in at the moment. I'd say about half of what I do is fan art. I really like fan art as an exercise, especially um, fan art of non-visual properties like books, because it's it gives you something to work from. And I like the challenge of adapting to someone else's uh, visual needs. Like I don't necessarily so much enjoy doing fan art of visual properties because all the problems basically have been solved for you. You already know what this character is going to look like, what he's going to wear. Um, but it's super fun to be able to, you know, design all the intricacies in armor when somebody just gives you one sentence. Um, cause then you're like, well, how am I going to represent this character? Is this character have, this is one of the reasons I think why the, uh, Game of Thrones does really well, almost subconsciously or, and Harry Potter as well is by giving each one of their houses um, kind of an animal motif. This is a visual aspect that as an artist you can run with. So you can, that's what, so it's like, what does the hound's helmet look like? What does the dark mark look like? Cause you have something that everybody's going to recognize, but you have enough room to interpret it your own way. And then my original work is largely um, the vi- like that whole aspect, the visual side of this long fantasy manuscript kind of thing that I've had since I was a kid. And so <laughs> it's just like a little headspace playground for me. Yeah, Nyla talked a, a little bit about that when uh, we interviewed her about how having like visual aspects in a story or a book or whatever helps not only, you know, people to sort of like have a visual hook to hang on the character or whatnot, but then, you know, I could see how that would also be like really useful for an artist. And as I was listening to that, I was thinking about for the first time how uh, I give George R. R. Martin a hard time about the the descriptions of people in Game of Thrones. Well, okay, I say that as if I actually like physically talk to George R. R. Martin. <laughs> I don't. I just so like George. complain about this. Right. I just complain about this to people. Um, but the whole idea of like the Lannisters are always blonde with, you know, whatever color eyes, but and the Targaryens have white hair with the violet eyes, and the Baratheons are always dark, and the people these people are this. And it's like 
that's not how genetics works. Right. That's really not how genetics works. And the whole idea that like you can hang the the first, you know, the stuff going on in the first book too. They're all all of her children are fair haired, but all of Robert Baratheon's children everywhere else are dark haired. And so that means it's like that's not how genetics works. Uh-huh. That's not how it works. But that said, and and who knows if like George R. R. Martin was aware that he was doing this. I mean, it really could have been that he was, because by the time he started writing Game of Thrones, he was a pretty experienced writer. Um but yes, when in doing that, even though that's not how genetics works, it does provide a way to very easily like have people be able to picture what what those characters look like, even if they're not getting like the very, very precise breakdown of what they look like. But it's like Lannisters have these traits, Targaryens have these traits and and then, you know, associating the houses with them and the visual stuff for the house. And so that gives artists a lot of different room to be able to interpret that. But at the same time, you see a picture of a woman with blonde hair, you know, standing next to a dude with a helmet with horns, you know, that's like Cersei and Robert Baratheon, you know, um, Mm -hmm. I guess it's one of those things where if you're a writer, keeping that in mind is actually not a bad thing. Is that even though like stuff might not actually work out 100% like that for other reasons. I mean, I can't complain too much about that. That's not how genetics works. There's dragons in this. <laughs> and they're pretty awesome dragons. I mean, I got to say. Right. So yeah. I can't, I can't give them too hard a time on that. I can talk about other things, but, but on that front, it's a very minor, minor criticism that genetics doesn't work, doesn't work like that. But Well, and in this fantasy universe, maybe, maybe it does. Who knows? Right. Right. But but sometimes, you know, those kind of considerations, you can fudge a little bit on the whether or not that will actually work like that in order to create something that then helps the audience hook in somehow, helps them hook in visually, helps a, and then helps an artist hook in visually, which I really love. And also, I love that when I was asking Grace about the kind of things that she loved to draw, she talked about doing fan art first. Um, and obviously because like she started out, she said, you know, Tamora Pierce and Diana Wynne Jones and I'm drawing stuff out of there. Um, but I love that, you know, so many artists who do stuff in this genre are like super into creating fan art. And I love that because fan art is awesome. It just is. It does. Well, and I think it feels, uh, I think it fills a need that canonical, art doesn't always um and i'm not even talking about like shipping characters who canonically are not together but just like you know seeing kind of like off i don't know off screen or off the page interaction with characters and you're like yeah they totally would do that um it's it's a lot of fun to see how how art can expand beyond the original um original scope or intent or whatever. And, you know, we get these, these glimpses behind the scene that maybe, you know, the, the original creator wouldn't agree with, but, you know, fans are like, yeah, that's, that's exactly how, you know, that interaction would go or yeah, they totally should be together. Whatever that is. It's fun to see that come to life. I agree. I agree. And like, as a writer, I cannot wait for there to be fan art of my stuff because I would love to see like what it is that my words inspire other people to see that they then put down. That's mm-hmm. I'm ready for that part. Yeah. Well, and even podcast, I mean, there's podcast fan art where people create uh, drawings of like scenarios that, that the uh, that the hosts have described or, or whatever. I mean, there's podcast fan art. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's actually a thing. It's, it's actually a thing. So, um, I'm super excited about this. <laughs> so, I mean, and I think that's just a, another facet of how creativity manifests is like, you take something like a podcast, like two people talking about, I don't know, their Nintendo switch and what game they've been playing or whatever. And that turns into fan art. And it's like, I don't know, it's cool. And I love seeing what comes out of, um, like, 
I was going to say I like seeing how people's brains work, but you don't get to see that. Like you get to see the result of that, but I love it. I love it. I love how fascinating it is. I love how creative people are and I love to see where stuff goes. I just think it's a lot of fun. I, you know, I wish I were more of a drawerly persuasion than I am, but um, I like seeing what other people create. Yeah, me too. I also, I cannot draw. I have, yeah, we've talked about this. I don't do, I don't do drawing. <laughs> um, so I talked to Grace a little bit about one of the uh, original pieces of art that she's working on right now. Um, I guess it's not a solo piece, but before I get to that, um, the big reason why I wanted to talk to Grace um, was because she when I met her on the cruise, she was in the middle of doing like this grand tour. Like she was going to a lot of different places after she went to all the places that we went to on the cruise. And she had already been to a bunch of places and just looking at her Instagram and seeing the beautiful pictures of all these different places that she was going. And then following her on Twitter and hearing all the hilarious stories about things that were happening. It was so great. And so I, that's, when I decided, like, I definitely want to talk to her, like, once she settles down from from all this traveling, because it was, like, months and months. So I asked her, you know, just to talk about that, the traveling and and what it was that she as an artist specifically was was getting out of that adventure. I'd spent about four years in Los Angeles at that point, four to five, somewhere around there. I'd been laid off from a job. Um, and... I guess I had to do some kind of soul searching to find out that, you know, life isn't just only about work and it isn't only about living in your own creative headspace. So traveling for me is a way of getting back in touch with reality and getting back in touch with different types of people's reality. The thing is like every part of the world, like everywhere that I've been has a different flavor to it, I guess. And after, you know, you go around, you can see how the different cultures have influenced each other. And especially if you, you know, get a, try and get a local tour guide, they'll usually explain what they learned in school and why this thing you're visiting is so important. So I really recommend doing that, by the way, if you are going to go somewhere. So one of the core aspects of going to a traditional art school is drawing from life. So this means, you know, your figure drawing where they bring in somebody who takes off their clothes and you draw them in different poses. And then also, you know, somebody brings in a bunch of fruit and then a bunch of like sculpture casts and you end up drawing those too. And the reason that we do this is because a lot of learning, you know, there's auditory learning, there's visual learning, and there's kinesthetic learning. And the best way to learn something is to just do it. So part of me traveling was to build myself in my head, a visual library. This refers to just different things that you have in your memory that you can call up when you have to design something yourself. So it was all just a really large exercise to make my further designs later more accurate. And because when you invent stuff out of your head, you can't come up with a lot of the small details and you don't necessarily understand how things fit together within, you know, realistic space or even within like 2D compositional space until you just try it. So this was part of assembling like, you know, just the giant mind palace of images. Ah, the mind palace. I love that giant mind palace of images. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And and I'll have you know, I because this is like a beef with me, like Sherlock was not the first time that people started talking about mind palaces. <laughs> Don't give Stephen Moffat and Mark Gaddis any more, any more credit <laughs> than they deserve about things. But I will say that, like, the first time I ever heard of the concept of the Mind Palace was actually when I was reading Hannibal. Yeah, mm-hmm. Hannibal mm-hmm. Um, by that guy, Thomas Harris. And I, I'm not going to get into it, but uh, I didn't like that book. But 
it did introduce me to the concept of the mind palace because that's one of the ways that Hannibal was going around doing things. He was like, I've kept it in my mind palace that I can go back and find this blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what is a mind palace? And then I looked it up. It's your brain. <laughs> like, I, just, I don't know. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> well, I mean, and that's the thing is, you know, you, you have been saying that you are not a person who envisions things visually inside of your head. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody says like a beach and a palm tree and whatever. And you're like, okay, fine. Like, mm-hmm. you know what those things look like, but you're not like envisioning the beach. Right. Right. So mind palaces really only work for people who have that visual imaginative ability because that's how a mind palace works. Because it's literally, I picture in my mind a room that I know really well, and I have placed this thing in this spot in the room, and that is how I access that memory. I wonder if I'm not good at trivia for this reason. Like, I just, I either have it or I don't. I don't have, like, nooks and crannies to explore and pull things out. Uh, maybe. I I don't know, because I don't know how the brain works. <laughs> I don't think anyone does. Like, people claim to, but I'm not sure that people actually do. They don't really know. Yeah. But yeah, so I, but I did, I agree with you. I love the way that Grace put that is that, you know, going out and seeing these things and experiencing these different cultures and having, you know, these experiences allows her to like create, you know, a, a vault of things with which she can pull out of the vault when she needs to. Um, and I am, constantly in awe of like how grace can render things in just you know a sketchbook and so yeah it's like when she was on the cruise I got I got a chance to see a lot of her sketches as she drew things um in the places that we stopped and the people that we met and whatever and so not only does she have like things coming into her brain that she keeps in her brain but also she has the sketchbook where she's keeping the things and and yeah like that you know, we've talked about this before about some of the benefits of travel and then just like, you know, building a library for you inside of you for the things that you're going to do in the future. Like that's one of the top reasons to to go out and see things that you don't normally see when you are a person who's creative. Yeah. It's all it's all adding adding to the stockpile. Yeah. But now I'm wondering like how that works. For for you, if you're like, if you're not building a visual library, but you're building an experiential library, is it is it the same thing? Like, do you feel like you've built your experience library up or do you feel like your experiences happen and then they're gone? You know, it's interesting. It's kind of, hmm, it's kind of they happen and they're gone unless I write about them. Um, or unless it was a very strong experience that kind of gets cemented. Um, I do wonder how much of that is, um, how much of that is because I don't have that visual memory and how much is because of, um, like, I don't know, my teens and early twenties were very, stressful and occasionally traumatic. And I don't, I don't want to make it sound like I had like a horrible childhood or anything. In some ways, every everyone's childhood is horrible, right? Um, I, but there was a lot of stuff that I later had to work through. And the way I dealt with it as it was happening was I compartmentalized and I, I disassociated a little. And I, I wonder if part of, part of that is just because that's how I'm wired from dealing with some really heavy traumatic stuff when my brain was still really plastic, like when I still had a lot of neuroplasticity. Um, so I don't, I don't know. It sounds horrible. My childhood was not the worst thing in the world. I promise. I make it sound like really bad, but I mean, there were there was some really really hard stuff that happened, um, and and I just didn't deal with it, and I just kind of learned to shove stuff away, um, which makes me awesome in a crisis. <laughs> now that I'm in my thirties and I've dealt with some of that. I still do that. Like I can deal with what's happening right now, whatever's urgent or emergent. And then, you know, later I can go back and deal with it, but I don't think it's always a good thing. And I think this might be one of the ways 
it manifests in my everyday life. I don't know if that makes sense. It makes total sense. Yeah. I mean, again, I don't, I don't understand everything because I don't understand the brain, but that totally makes sense to me. And because yeah, the, the stuff that goes on in our lives when we're young, totally like shapes our brain, changes, changes how we deal with things. So when you, you said that sometimes the experience slips away um, unless you write it down. Mm-hmm. Do you keep a journal that's like a sort of diary journal? Because we, I mean, we've talked about bullet journals. We're not yeah. going to do that this time. But <laughs> but another kind of journal? So it's interesting. Um, one of my goals for this year is to write every day. Um, and I, I have never really done this before. Um, so I got a, a Hobonichi uh, an A6 Hobonichi and it has daily pages. And so my goal is just to, to write every day. Um, so right now it's February 16th as we record this and I've missed two days already, um, this year, but I am finding a lot of value in kind of going back and seeing what happened, um, already. I think another way I do this, I think this is why I'm so drawn to photography. Um, I'm also doing a photo a day project this year. Um, and I think that this is part of it is because, because I don't have that, that visual component to my memory, at least not a strong one anyway. Um, I rely on photographs to kind of help, help trigger memories and feelings and that kind of thing with me. Um, so, so it's been more photos um, than writing, to be honest, but I am getting to a point where it's kind of like this three pronged approach where it's like a photo a day, um, writing about the day. And sometimes it's just two sentences. So I think one day I, I was like, I am really sick today. It sucks. You know, <laughs> like sometimes that's it. Um, and I'm also, and this might be something that we talk about later, but I'm new into a new planner. I've actually stopped bullet journaling. Um, And that is also, I'm also using that to kind of capture, um, thoughts and feelings and revelations as they happen. So kind of this three pronged approach is really helping me with that. That's really cool. Yeah. We, we talked a little bit about that, about the, the change in planners and I'm still, I'm still trying to like actually do my bullet journal to, to figure out if it is the best way, but I keep hiding the bullet journal because there's too many things to do. Yeah. Um, Um, but so, so I will say, I know this is off topic, but I will say one thing that has really, really helped me with this planner I'm using again, I'll talk about it later if I feel like it's working well for me, but you pick three, three big goals for the day. And those are like your three, these have to get done no matter what. And then the rest is just like, okay, whatever. And that's really helped me take some pressure off myself, um, is like, okay, if I get these three things done, it's been a successful day. Um, so I don't know if that might help you with bullet journaling. If you like put a dot next to your three or whatever, um, I don't know if it's still overwhelming, but that's been really helpful for me. I definitely have to try that. Um, one thing I do do every, well, I, I try to do every day. And of course I can't always make that happen is doing a diary at the end of the day, but in a specific format. And I found this format in the book syllabus by Linda Berry. And Linda is a writer and also a cartoonist and artist and teaches classes at UW-Madison, University of Wisconsin-Madison, about the, the connections between writing and artistry. Like, they're, they're meant to be classes that you can take even if your major is writing or if your major is art. Um, sometimes people from outside the major can take them, but it's it's meant to be a sort of a blend of things. So some of her students are, well, used to drawing and others of her students are not used to it. And the same with writing. Some are familiar and some aren't. And Syllabus, I found to be a really fascinating book because it's essentially just going through like the syllabuses, the what are we doing today in class, but, you know, with some interstitial bits about her observations about her students, whatever, but like this, the different assignment pages and whatever just contain, you know, a lot of really useful information. So one of the ones that she has her students do is keeping a daily diary and she has them like divide the, a page into four parts. And the first part is like things that I saw today. And you like list seven of them. Things that I did today, you list seven of them. Um, I've modified it. So now I'm blanking on 
what the other two were originally, because I, I think one of them was draw a picture of something that you saw today. And I forget what the the last one was. But I took out the draw a picture because I don't draw. And I think that I added what, oh, I added smell. That was the first one that I added because I gave this to my students and I was asking them about, or I was telling them about how a lot of times we leave smell out of the senses Mm -hmm. with writing. You know, there's a lot of visual, there's a lot of audio. Sometimes there'll be some tactile, but there's a lot left out of like what things smell like. And obviously taste generally only comes up when somebody's eating. Um, but you shouldn't leave smell out because smell is actually a really important sense, you know, especially when it comes to like memories and just, you know, just everything. But like for some reason, writers tend to leave out smell. And so I, I have my students like put down what they smelled that day <laughs> in in one of the boxes. Um, so I, I will include in the show notes the link to the whole thing, um, Linda Berry's version. But the whole point of keeping that diary is for students to think about what it is that they've seen that day. And, you know, just at the end of the day and they're like, Oh, but my days are just every day. It's the same thing. The same things like that. Maybe so fine. Like put that in your diary. But the more you do it, the more you start to recall something cool that you saw that day, something neat that you did that was out of the ordinary or something that you observed in a space that you're in every day that you haven't really thought about or haven't really seen because it's just there all the time. And I always encourage writers to do that daily diary format. And I try to do it myself because I am also trying to develop that just building a mind palace, like building a record of what it is that I've seen because And I also try to write every day um, sort of a a narrative diary, just talking about like the stuff that I thought about that day and the struggles that I've had and, you know, what I was doing, if I was doing something neat, like, you know, if I'm on a cruise, I'm traveling, whatever. Because when I go back and look through my old journals, I'm like, I I didn't even remember this. I wrote down this awesome thing and I didn't remember it at all. And I remember a lot of things, but I think that... The act of writing it down sometimes helps things to stick. Yeah. But I think it also helps my brain to decide what things need to be in my brain and what things can now exist on the outside of my brain because I don't necessarily need them. Because when I go back and I'll see stuff, I'm like, oh, I forgot about that or whatever. It's not necessarily like always some gem that I'm like, how could I have forgotten this thing? Um, But it's something that I can come back to, but it doesn't necessarily need to be in my brain. So I try to just, you know, use my writing journal as that kind of record. So not every day will be like, this is what I have for breakfast. This is what I, you know, whatever. And, and actually I keep, I think I've said this before, my writing journal and my bullet journal are separate things because to me, they are separate processes. I don't want to put all the things that I have to do in a day, all the tasks I haven't done, all the work I have in my writing journal, because that is like, my creative journal space. And even if I have a thing where I'm like, every day I'm going to write down like the seven things I saw today and the stuff I smelled and whatever it is, the things I tasted. Um, I remember the the last one I added, things overheard, like things that I heard that day. Okay. Yeah. Like keeping snippets of conversation that I remember at the end of the day. You know, whatever that is, like that all can lead to something creative and that's why I keep it there. But I don't want to keep it in the same places I keep the stuff I have in my bullet journal. I love this. I might adopt it for my my daily writing. Um and yeah, I think that's that's awesome because it's it gives you something concrete to draw on. Um whether you're actually like going to draw or write or I don't know inspiration for composing music or um you know maybe a a cool idea for a user interaction in an app or whatever. Uh I think that's a neat neat idea. Even if, I mean, there are, I go days without ever leaving my house at this point. Um, not forever, but it's just for now. And, um, I think that, that many days would look the same. Like, what did you smell today? Um, well, my cat was in my face, so I kind of smelled, I don't know, cat hair 
not the best thing. Um, or I actually wore perfume today. So I smelled that, or, you know, uh, I cooked this thing and I could smell that cooking. I, I think that that's a neat way to approach it. Yeah. I, and I've learned that from reading lots of different things like Linda Berry's syllabus. So read all the things. See, it always comes back to that with oh, me. I'm like, man. read stuff. <laughs> I wish I had more time. Yeah. So they, yeah. Um, so this next, segment of interview it's a it's a bit long but I wanted to put together there were just a lot of different ideas that sort of flowed into each other that I really wanted to all put together so that we could then comment on them on the at the end but I was specifically talking to Grace about you know being an observer and how that relates to to art and writing and it's uh, similar to the question that I asked Nyla Magruder when I talked to her about the same kind of thing because I am really interested in the way that artists' observation can, like that skill can be applied to other kinds of art. And so that's why I keep asking artists questions about this. And so then it it morphed into a lot of different things. Okay. One of the things about being an artist is you're trying to visually represent so much more information than the picture really shows. That's the difference between, you know, photography where you're trying to capture a specific moment and put everything onto one one image. While if you're like a traditional like painter or something, or you have more tools with which to convey feeling. While with photos, you just have the composition of the items in the photo. But with visual arts, you have more control with the brushstrokes, with the color palette to get more of, to put more information down. Observational drawing it is in one way kind of like a key that opens a door that leads you to a bunch of other goddamn doors. It's a way to understand how things are built together and how things grow on top of each other. I took a class with a man, a a, uh, concept artist, and he works on video games. And so when people are like, design me this new culture for the video game and how this applies to fantasy, like fantasy literature is when you're trying to build up a culture, how you show like how things are built on top of each other or how symbols that are important to the people get visually represented, drawing from real life is kind of almost like a reverse process as you're seeing this visual representation that has been diluted down from what people in this um, part of the world, like how they see, how their ancestors saw and you end up wanting to just dig further and go, you know, go past what you can see on the surface right now in the modern era. Some of the research from like a kind of, I guess, scientific neurological aspect uh, can be found in like papers on uh, vision and like how the brain interprets things. So like one thing um, that Sam Weber, who is a very famous illustrator who did the cover of now I Rise and Mistborn, or one of the Mistborn covers. Um, he's very, very good. One of the things he mentions in his class is that the brain processes um, black and white and color in different areas. So when the brain looks at an object that is black and white, it is using energy to determine what the object is. But when the brain sees color, it's closer to the emotional center. So people use color as a way to identify how they should feel about something, which is why, you know, there's so many cultural attachments to, um, you know, red being for like either anger or like, you know, prosperity, depending where you're from is that's why emotion gets tied to color. A large number of art schools, their focus is not so much can you paint the thing in front of you? Can you effectively mimic how light falls on a surface? But it's more about, oh, graphic design. How can you use these colors to make an audience feel a certain way? Or in fine art, is how do you take an abstract idea and coalesce it into a visual piece that causes audiences to wonder or think or feel sad or et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so different schools emphasize different things. I personally come from the um, realistic slash science-y 
what I'm trying to do is not so much create an abstract expression of our world, but create a fake world that people can believe in. So yeah, there's a lot to unpack. Yeah, there is. Um, <laughs> creating a fake world people can believe in. I think that's that's a lot of creativity in and of itself is mm-hmm. um, that's what you do like when you write or when you make a, a, a movie, like whatever part of that process you're involved in or um, even even with music and invoking feelings and and that kind of thing is uh, I don't know, transformative for people, at least in the moment. Um, so I, I love, I love that like synopsis of creating fake worlds that, that people can believe in. And what I love about that also is, you know, she was saying she comes from the school of like the realistic sort of sciencey art background. And it's interesting that that is sort of what allows her to create fake worlds <laughs> and yeah. to create fake, you know, animals and settings and whatever. It's because she understands like how the things work in realistic art. I guess, I don't know if that's like really the right term, but, but then applies it to this other thing. And, and again, it's, she was talking about, you know, the doing the observations and like creating you know, the the visual stuff for your mind palace because you have to understand how people have already done things in order to think about how uh, a person that's made up in your head or made up in someone other's head, someone else's head, a culture that comes from just the inside of the head and not a real culture, how they would maybe do those things and put those things on top of each other and, and what they would emphasize or whatever. You still have to understand how people who've already done it do those things in order to be mm-hmm. able to create an imaginary one. Um, and it's the same with writing. You know, if you're going to build a world, you have to understand how cultures work in order to create a realistic culture. Plenty of people have made horrendously unrealistic cultures <laughs> because they don't understand how culture actually works. Right. Um, and I, I feel like the, the aspect of world building that is the most grading to me is when people get religions and spiritualities wrong. Like I, I feel like I can always tell when somebody either comes from a very different type of religion or spirituality than they're trying to portray, or if they are an atheist, because they're getting a lot of things wrong Mm -hmm. about it. I'm like, it's because you don't actually, you don't understand how this actually works. You're, you're, only you created something by looking at it from the outside and going, look at that, that thing. I'm going to create something that makes fun of that thing. Yeah. I feel like that happens a lot. So I do too. Yeah. Yeah. So I, and it's the same in art. It's like, you can't create, you know, a, a, a cityscape if you don't understand how cities are built or how they look, you know? So yeah, I, I love that, that those two things like come together. the, the understanding the realist part in order to create the surrealist or fantasy part. Yeah. It's, it's necessary, right? Because you have to have something you can believe in. There's gotta be some kind of something that you can latch onto and understand in order to, um, to buy into the rest of it. Yeah. I also like what she said about how observational art is a key that opens the door that leads to more goddamn doors. (laughs) Yes. I feel like that that can describe so many processes of art. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Like if you're lucky. <laughs> sometimes sometimes I open doors and they're dead ends and that's sad. No, no, you have to look for the secret window hidden uh, under the That's door. probably it. You got to hit <laughs> the right slide brick. down it. Yeah, with the pink umbrella. Yeah. Right. Yep. And then and then they'll open the secret door. Yeah. Yeah, but um but yeah, so I Artistic tools, like having having some background and understanding those artistic tools like is clearly important. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to get it by going to art school, but it is something that, you know, seems really important to develop. Um, I also love what, what she was saying about how when you are a visual artist, you have a lot more tools to work with than, say, if you're a photographer, because you can make 
things you can communicate with like lots of different tools. And as you were saying, like you started to understand some stuff about the art you were seeing because you were able to see the brushstrokes because you were able to like visually like hook into what they were doing like on the canvas as opposed to just sort of seeing like a flat representation of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. That's important. And also, um, I, I, the difference between black and white and color in our brains, that was, that's super fascinating. So I find the, the science behind what goes on with like color and other different stuff in our brains very interesting, but I find more interesting the fact that it does then influence how different artists approach art. Um, for reasons that I are unknown to me, I suddenly had a hankering a couple of months ago to start listening to this soundtrack of Sunday in the Park with George again, which I haven't really listened to in a very long time, but it just came into my head. So then I listened to it a bunch and then I started looking up, you know, the Wikipedia on um, the artist Surat. So mm, I always say his name wrong because it's actually French and I, I cannot, I keep like the actual real pronunciation keeps leaving my head, mm-hmm. but it's a Sunday in the park with George guy. So <laughs> at any rate, he was a pointillist. And so his work is done with like little dots of color that then blend together the farther away you get from the painting. And he started doing that because of scientific research into the way that our brains see color and perceive color that were then published. And then, the, you know, the people in his art circles were like, oh, did you see this interesting paper or monograph or whatever on color and this, that, and the other thing? And he read that and he was like, huh, I wonder if that I can incorporate that into my art. And that's where the sort of pointillism stuff started coming from. And I find that fascinating. So it's it's interesting that, that this painting was the inspiration for the musical. Um, so the, the painting is a Sunday afternoon on the island of, uh, I don't speak French, so I'm going to say it a Spanish way, La Grande uh, Jetty. I don't know. I don't know. I'm sorry. Um, so this is one of the paintings I was thinking of specifically when I was talking about the Chicago art museum and seeing, seeing like brushstrokes or how the color was applied is this painting is massive. It's like the size of the wall of my office. It's huge. And this is one of them that I was thinking of where I was like looking up, up close and seeing, all the different stuff was amazing. And I absolutely fell in love with this painting. So I love that this is something that's coming back around already in this conversation. Yeah. One day I'm going to see that painting in real life. I've only seen pictures of it, but you know, but I, I have seen the pictures that show the scope of it because some of the pictures I've seen, like have little have people standing in front of it and you're like, Oh, okay. That, that thing is huge. It's huge. It's so big. And I've seen pictures of like close-ups of sections of it where they show how he does that, like how he was able to like, you know, have the dots of the blue and the green and the red and whatever. And then as you get further away, they all blend together into the colors that that those colors create once they blend in your brain, right? And it's such an achievement. And art that has, you know, sort of technical backgrounds like that, I know that there are some people who might be like, oh, but sometimes you can be too technical. And yes, it's true that sometimes you can be too technical, but when combined with some sort of creative essence, it then, you know, the technology and the technicalness and the creativity and stuff all blend together to something amazing. I mean, you can't look at that painting and not tell me that that's not an amazing painting. Like that's not an artistic achievement as well as a technical achievement. Like it's really cool, like how he was able to do the thing that he did like that's neat, but he also did the thing he did and made it beautiful. Yeah, it's it's such a great painting. I can't if you go to Chicago, you go to the Art Institute, look look for this painting because it's um the picture I'm looking at the Wikipedia article right now and the pictures don't even begin to do it justice. It's 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 a painting. I looked at it and I was like, "Oh, I see." I see, kind of see what's happening here. And I went to the gift shop because I was like, I need something to remember this experience. And I would like it to have something from this painting on it and nothing like even the gift shop on premises had 
didn't have anything that that I bought because I was just like, this doesn't, this doesn't do it. It just doesn't do it. Yeah. It's interesting how much a photograph of a thing when it's art can not always capture the power of the art. And it, you know, it depends on the art. Um, but like prints, prints of art sometimes work as being okay instead of having like the original art itself. But then again, prints aren't necessarily always a picture of, so it's a different process. So I think it generates a different kind of thing and it's a different experience. Um, yeah, it's, I don't know. It's That's one of the things that's sort of a little bit sad about some pieces of art is that unless you actually go there and experience it, you're never going to be able to like fully understand yeah. how it works and and how amazing it is and how beautiful. And, you know, again, this is why... Sometimes having to like go out and do things, go out and travel and see the things and sort of understand like that's why some of us have to do that because you can't really get a sense of it just by looking at a picture. Um, I'm thinking again of like my own, you know, desire to go to Egypt, uh, which I will talk about at the end of this podcast um, in more detail. But it's because I just know that I need to stand next to some pyramids. Right. as I've said before, because otherwise I'm not going to be able to capture what it means to stand there and look up at them. Yeah. I, I totally, I totally think that's valid. There's so much I want to see and experience and, you know, I might not have that picture recall in my head, but I kind of think that's maybe why it's important for me is because, you know, I can look on the internet, but that doesn't, that doesn't do it. You know, that doesn't give me an immersive experience like I need to have for the way my, my brain and my memory work. So we got to earn a million dollars, a million dollars somehow and get out (laughs) into the world with our stuff. Um, (laughs) one of the, speaking of money, one of the parts of this interview that I didn't include, um, was Grace talking about how it was that she afforded to do her, grand tour uh, across many continents and and visiting many people. And in part, she did it in the way that I have done it in that she knows some people in some places and can like go stay with them. It's not all about hotels and whatnot, but also there was, there was a section in there just talking about saving up money and living very frugally and doing some little bit of investing and playing around a little bit with airline points and credit cards and stuff. But, you know, essentially, it's not, it's still not easy to put together the kind of money to do that kind of thing. And the the stars aligned in a sort of perfect way in order for Grace to be able to do it. But but one of the reasons why I just decided not to include all of the details of that, the whole long explanation of that in this podcast is because it's not necessarily something that everybody can replicate. Like, it's not a recipe for yeah. how do I be able to do these things. Um, it a lot of it sometimes it just has to do with stars aligning. Um, so yeah. Uh, Come on stars. Stars. Line up. Get in place. Mm-hmm. So the last thing I wanted to have Grace tell us about is the thing that she is doing right now with uh, author Alyssa Wong. They're doing a, a story together. And I work very closely with Alyssa Wong. Um, who is a horror writer and the way that we work is really fun because a lot of the times for me, because I'm so visual, I'm like, I completely forget to think about how a character is feeling or to um, actually like, you know, put that down on page in text. I'll just write what the character is doing and cross my fingers, hoping that the audience will interpret it correctly. But you absolutely cannot count on that because everybody brings something different to the table. Meanwhile, for her, I'm like, that is completely physically impossible. How did he cross the room in the span of a sentence? Because <laughs> for me, everything like fits into a particular space. And both of us, it's, we would give each other absolute full credit as co-creators for whatever we're working on. So yeah, we collaborate on the um, outline and bones of the story and like the character motivations. 
But for her, she's executing her half in prose and I'm doing kind of a sequential um, bat, like batch of images so that we're telling two stories from, I guess, from one very personal perspective and one omniscient perspective that hopefully, cross our fingers, fold together in the end. <laughs> I am so looking forward to seeing that. What I love about this is it invokes some of those conversations that we've had already about working with people in other mediums and seeing what comes out of it. Yeah, definitely. Because there aren't a lot necessarily of stories where there's one part being rendered in like the visual and one part being rendered in the, in the text. I mean, obviously this is how comics work, but I, I have a feeling that they're not creating sort of a comic they're they're creating something else so this is why I said I'm really excited to see this um so as far as I know they're still working on this story but it's going to be in uncanny magazine once it's done mm. and uh so I think that you should be sure to to follow as uh, Grace will tell you how to follow her but be sure to follow her so you can find out when that happens because it it does sound amazing and Alyssa is a really just one of my favorite authors um and and I have seen so many really amazing stories from her. Like she's just such an excellent storyteller. So like the two of them together, I'm really interested to see what they can do. And, and I'm really just interested in, in having more narratives like that. I think that we have finally now gotten to the point with online uh, short story magazines where they're now starting to take more advantage of the fact that they are online and not in print there was like a a really small time in which everybody's like maybe hypertext stories or the new wave and the hypertext stories didn't really take off but you know thinking about things like this i feel like it's more it's easier to have it happen in an online magazine because you don't have to think about print considerations you don't have to think about like oh crap we have to do like a whole color section in the thing or whatever. Nobody has to think about those kind of things. It just goes up on the internet. It's great. Um, Amal Al-Maltar recently published a poem in Faya magazine. And I'll have a link so that you can find such things. Um, but she recently published this poem and the way that they put the poem on the page and the art that went with it. And there, there's like so many elements that happened because it's online, because they were able, they had full control over like the, you know, the design of the page and the CSS and the things and whatever. And it, it transformed the poem in such a way that it just enhanced it. Like, it's just wonderful. So we'll give you the link to that in the show notes. But that's the kind of thing that I, I want to see more of in, you know, our genre is just like that, just that way of taking advantage of like all this sort of technical stuff that you can do and not being afraid to like cross, you know, boundaries of genre and form and and whatever it is. So I'm excited for what Grace is going to be doing with Alyssa. I'm excited for what's already been done. Um, and I'm just actually excited for you to get a chance to take a look at some of Grace's stuff because she's just, she's very talented and her stuff is beautiful, but also just what she has to say on Twitter and on Instagram and whatever is, is just as worth listening to and worth viewing as the stuff that she produces as an artist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. So we'll let Grace tell you where to find her on these here internets. My professional website, which is Grace P. Fong. And I live on Twitter with my internet handle, which is Fictograph, which is like pictograph, but with an F instead of a P. Also, I use the same handle on Instagram. And as always, we'll have links to all of that in the show notes. I also wanted to mention, since I said I would talk about it at the end of the podcast, that I'm still trying to get to Egypt. Mm-hmm. And if mm-hmm. you are a listener of this podcast and you're like, Tempest, I love hearing your voice and all of your contributions. If you could just slide on over <laughs> to my, uh, my support website and like drop a, cute, a few coins in my trip to Egypt fundraiser, I would just appreciate it. So that's like my small plug for my own stuff. 
which I don't do a whole lot. But uh, yes, if you would like to contribute, if you go to support.ktempestbradford.com, you can read all about the thing that I'm writing. If you don't know, you can find out where to give me the coins, the few coins, um, and what you get in terms of rewards, like backer rewards, depending on the amount of coins that you give me. And so I just wanted to to throw that out there because I'm getting down to the wire. I got to start paying for this trip very soon. Do it. Um, and of course, a link to that is going to be in the show notes. So yeah, go um, go throw Tempest even a dollar. We've talked about this before. Like if 100 people give her a dollar, that's, I don't know, several meals. That's awesome. Um, so yes, please. Yep. And so that's it for this week, though. That's it for this week. Um, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Aline. It's A-L-E-E-N. You can find Tempest on Twitter at Timey Timey Tempest or Tiny Tempest. Um, goodness gracious. You can find the show at Originality FM. And until next time. Draw every cute boy you see. Mm, especially if you go see Black Panther. <laughs> 